Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that is shed abroad in our hearts and in this place here today. We thank you that the way was paved by the blood of Christ for our fellowship here among the saints and the household of God, made so because of the living stones that are here attending, Lord. We thank you for the glorious fulfillment of what the psalmist cried for in Psalm 42 and what your Son declared to us, our Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 4, that no longer must we pilgrimage here or there or ask the question whether in this mountain or in that mountain to worship you, but instead those that worship you, worship you in spirit and in truth. And each one of us has been made living stones and a tabernacle for the indwelling Holy Spirit. Lord, union with you is certainly a mystery that we will enjoy contemplating, learning more of, and saturating our affections and intellect upon until you return or call us home. But we thank you, Lord, that with the reality of our life in Christ comes a wealth of joyful, wellspringing reasons to praise and worship with these songs. Now I pray, Lord, as we open your scriptures, that you would also open our hearts and minds to comprehend the riches of the knowledge that we have in Christ Jesus. And I pray that the fruit of this message, the fruit of this service, our songs that we sung in the fellowship that we have together, would move us toward a more consistent walk of holiness with you, a more articulate profession of faith, and the strong, Lord Jesus, abiding sense of assurance that in Jesus Christ is our salvation, now and eternally. And it is in that precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise you, Lord. I'm reminded once again this morning of the great privilege of joining together in fellowship, worship, and the reading of God's holy word. If you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And in a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. While you're finding your place, Matthew 16 again, verses 13 through 28. I'll give you the title of this morning's message. It's called Elemental Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church that first appears in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16. It'll be part of our text today as... Christ declares His purposes for His church. And this morning we'll learn, I trust from this passage, hopefully, how four elements of this section of Scripture where Christ declares aspects of truth about His church, four elements, how they will help us understand the church and ourselves as we are the church and God's purposes for the church moving forward through history. So this morning, stand with me if you would. In Matthew 16, we'll begin reading in verse 13, and here is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and then on the third day to be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? What shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the inherent, infallible word of God. You may be seated. The record of Matthew's gospel has recorded surprising events on first glance. And all of these surprising events to this point, about halfway in the gospel record, have been leading up to setting the stage for a pivotal moment in Christ's ministry. This section of scripture we just read is extremely important and pivotal. It's important for the explanation of how Christ will establish his kingdom certain elemental principles in that regard. It's important because it denotes a shift in some of his tone and direction, proposition, and ministry. There are phrases that indicate as much, and there are clues to help us understand this text. For instance, in verse 21, from that time. Those three words indicate that there's a change in what Jesus is beginning to share with his disciples. That is a shift from declaring the message of the kingdom of God as he has generally and to begin to show some specific aspects of his redemptive work. And these aspects he begins to show are indeed what he will suffer in his passion, death, burial, and resurrection at the hands of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders in Jerusalem. Yet he himself in this instance is prophesying this will happen and he will be raised. Surprising moments, indeed. But perhaps to this moment, most surprising of all, no doubt, to the disciples who have followed him, the faithful few, no matter how ignorant even to this point they have remained, perhaps most disheartening to them is the fact that it seemed wherever Christ went, 
whether it was this region over here, Jerusalem over there, before these religious leaders, before this cultural scenario, whether it's hometown, whole cities, people groups, the religious establishment or cultural centers, it seemed wherever Jesus went, his message and his person was met more often with rejection rather than acceptance. Jesus' tone even of his preaching has changed through the course of this gospel. You remember in chapter 4, verse 17, as he's walking along that region there and fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah as he arrives with the message of the kingdom, he's bringing the testimony of the gospel of the kingdom as summarized by these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thus Christ's instruction opens with clear, direct teaching as to its constitution and we read this in chapters 5 through 7 in the great sermon on the mount aspects of who he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets a raising of the bar at least in the minds of people so that they might understand the the inarguable holiness of God that he demands perfection and so nothing short of perfect law keeping will do to justify And so we connect with gospel understanding that this can only happen two ways. Either one obeys perfectly with no sin nature as Christ did, or one receives his propitiatory sacrifice. And then his law-keeping power be credited to their account. These were connections you could have drawn if you had ears to hear as Jesus was teaching. But unfortunately, as we see in the record, most did not. As people continued to harden their heart to the clear and direct proposition and proclamation of the gospel through the lips of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, he begins to pronounce judgment. And there's message after message denouncing unrepentant cities. A declaration that happens in 1120. A declaration of the sign of the prophet Jonah that is prophesied that will visit the religious leaders. This we see in the record as well. In chapter 11, verse, I'm sorry, 12, verse 29. That admonition is repeated later. And then in 13, 10 through 11, Jesus himself begins to speak in parables. In 13, chapter 13, that is, verses 10 and 11, we see the reason why. Parables are coming in part as a judgment. They're obscuring the truth as a judgment pronounced on the obstinate hearers. We see a fulfillment and an echo of Isaiah's prophecy. It's not what modern me. Modern readers sometimes surmise that Jesus spoke in narrative and parable form to make it more accessible and easier for people to understand. In fact, the opposite is true. Those who had not listened and indeed had blasphemed his name in the prior chapter, including the religious leaders who said that he spoke of demons of Beelzebul, will now no longer hear the clear proclamation in the same way. Now it will come in obscurity, especially for those who are blind. It will come in the form of parable. And there will be a select few who receive the key to understanding and unlocking these parables, the interpretation thereof, and that will be those who are given to know, namely the disciples. All of these I submit to you and many more are indeed surprising elements just from a human perspective that are revealed to us on this stage. But all of them have been begging to this point This question, I imagine if we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples following Christ, all of us would be begging to ask this question, wanting the answer, and it would be hanging, as it were, in the air. Jesus, our Lord, our Master, indeed, how will 
your kingdom be established. If your message has been met with hardness of heart, unpopularity, anger, and animosity, if the crowds turn away and reject you, if the religious elites and the influential walk away and plot to kill you, indeed, if you cannot convince a people group over here or over there or even in your hometown, those who are closest to you and can trust your integrity by closest relationship, who grew up with you, if they indeed reject you, and you no longer do mighty works in there, if your miracles aren't impressive enough, if they haven't convinced the crowds, if the power of God so evident in your, both your preaching, its authority, and your miraculous intervention even into the normal course of creation and history to demonstrate that you come from God, indeed have the power of God, are indeed God incarnate, how will your kingdom be established? The question rings, no doubt, in the heart of everyone who cared to see God's kingdom come. Well, in Matthew 16, we have the surprising answer. Christ would build his church. Ecclesia is here first mentioned, the Greek word for church, from Christ's lips in the Gospel of Matthew. And Christ would build his kingdom, but he would not do it man's way. He would do it his way according to the predestined plan before time began and the heart of the Father and the covenant of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He would do it his way and it would be powerful in the eyes of those who eventually see the small, the weak, the unlikely, and the thriving gospel ambassadors of Jesus Christ bringing the message of the kingdom forward for thousands of years to hundreds of, and thousands of peoples to people groups, the entire globe, and even to this day, as I trust it is proclaimed from this pulpit, the message of the kingdom today is continuing through Christ's established, Christ's sovereignly established church. Christ's conquering kingdom institution would not be mighty military force, would not be humanistic politics, it would not be the ways and schemes and babble-building operations of man. It would be instead an unlikely way, yet power, more powerful, all the same, displaying his glory, a generational vision of announcing the truth through unlikely vessels like you and I, kingdom agents, kingdom agents, as Paul says, ambassadors for the truth, who would be vetted on the basis of our faith, and the revelation from God himself. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, his disciples this probing, all-important question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered some suggestions that were offered by the popular opinion and the inquisitive of their hour. Some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, and now more specifically, to the heart and to the soul of one representative man, namely Simon Peter, who do you, Simon Peter, say that I am? Let me pause there and give you a heading for four elements that I hope will help us understand the role of Christ's church and the mystery of how his kingdom will be built. There are four elements in this section that I've identified that are helpful to me. If I can explain these in some detail, responsibly from Scripture, we will understand better the mysterious ways of Christ 
the power of his church, and indeed our call, and they are as follows. Confession, rock, gates, and keys. The first is what's happening when Peter answers Christ's question, who do you say that I am? Peter is delivering a confession, and it is the basis of the church and becomes foundational to a church member, the confession. How we answer the question, who Christ is, how we consider Him in our own heart and mind, what the church says about Christ and believes in their heart is absolutely foundational to the church. In fact, how they answer that question determines if they are the church or not, in spite of anything else they say or any other thing they claim to be. Secondly, rock. Three metaphors follow. There's a metaphor of rock. Christ says, upon this rock I'll build my church. There's gates referring to the forces of the enemy. It says the gates of hell, he says, shall not prevail against this church. And there's a third metaphor, keys. I will give you, he says, Peter, to Peter as a representative apostle. I will give you the keys of the kingdom such that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So let us start with some detail in point number one, confession. Who do you say that I am? Again, the question rings from the pages of Scripture and ought to touch the heartstrings of your own soul. How would you answer this question today? Who do you say that I am? That is Christ speaking to us, to our hearts. As, and here we are, beg to give an answer to this question. Who do you say that I am? Here's Simon Peter's answer. It's awesome. Verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The confession of the Bible-believing, blood-bought, Christ-confessing church, first of all, is the correct identity of Christ. Who is he? He is God's Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. He is human. He is divine. In hypostatic union, as the theology describes, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the one unique and only answer to the problem and plight of man's soul, here incarnate in the flesh, walking and declaring to us the message of the kingdom. That's who you are. There's another point in the gospel where those, and the book of John records this, where those who become disillusioned because they don't understand the identity of Christ and some of the things that he says are surprising and shocking to them, they begin to leave him one by one. And Christ turns to his own disciples, those who at least partially at this time had eyes to see and ears to hear, and he said, will you leave me as well? And the answer to that question is almost as profound as this. Where would we go? You have the words of life. This is the confession of the church of Jesus Christ. The exclusive hope of salvation, such that no matter the cost, we bind ourselves to it for our hope and for our security and assurance. That is who Christ is to the true confessing church. Christ answers immediately that this is not a conclusion that Peter has reached 
based on his reasoning. This is not something that man through mere logical forces and determination through study of history and scientific inquiry has arrived at. Not even through the study of scriptures with the best tools at his disposal of higher academic, religious, theological learning. The basis of this confession is more profound, far more, and indeed absolutely supernatural than that. Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The true confessing church cannot lay claim to their own understanding or salvation or confession on any other grounds than God the Father has sovereignly revealed it to us. That he has resurrected this sin-dead soul to newness of life in Christ Jesus. That he has reached into this unlikely vessel, removed the clouds of death and misunderstanding, and placed the seed of spiritual understanding and life in the heart and mind of this believer. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to us. Scribe and Pharisee and religious rabbi and teacher outside of Christ's sovereign, miraculous, eye-opening power has not revealed this to us. History, experience, scientific method has not revealed this to us. What is the source ultimately of knowledge, faith, confession, and revelation? It is the power of God to illumine the heart to truths that are beyond human comprehension given our natural faculties. The identity of Christ as sovereignly revealed through his scriptures by the Holy Spirit's illumining power, illuminating power is the basis of the confession of the true church. And when we identify Christ not by means and merit of our own understanding, but giving the glory to God for revealing him to us, we can rejoice with some assurance that we celebrate in the fellowship of the saints, that same fellowship that Paul spoke about in Ephesians chapter 2 and Joel read this morning in our worship text. I'll remind you in two weeks we'll be back in Hebrews for our communion theme. Remember in Hebrews the problem with the church there? It wasn't that they didn't have an understanding of the Old Covenant church history. It wasn't that they didn't have access to writings, to prophecy, to deep thinking, to impressive speakers, and to intellectual assent. The problem was that they had allowed other things to compete for the supremacy of Christ in their own mind. And be it angels, be it extra covenantal activity, or anything that lies outside the boundary of Christ alone, him crucified, resurrected, ascended, and ruling and reigning over his church. Anything short of that is a death knell for the confessing church. It is a prerequisite for apostasy. It is the red flag and it is the pulse fading from the confessing body of Christ's bride. And if we cannot say with Peter, with the disciples, that you are Christ, the Son of the living God, with no personal qualifications, but only as it's sovereignly revealed, then we cannot say with assurance that we are the church of Jesus Christ. The confession is, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But let us continue because the confession does not close with that simple assent to identity. Secondly, consider the work of Christ. Now, at first, this seems, this record, if we paused right here, Peter would come out a rock star. What a great theologian. What an amazing man. God in the flesh just gave him a personal beatitude. Blessed are you, Peter, for God has revealed it to you. Recalling Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. I got a compliment from my Savior, elbowing his friends he could, maybe if walking in the flesh. Did you hear that? I got it right. In the next passage, we see the tables entirely shifted as Peter, now blind to another truth of Christ, is called out as an idiot. Verse 29. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, I should say, and worse than an idiot. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And what is Peter's response? On the third day be raised, excuse me. And what is Peter's response? Verse 22. Oh, so be it, according to the will of the eternal covenant of the Godhead, we rejoice that our salvation will be purchased for us in short order. Nothing of the kind. Peter took him aside. Jesus, let me have a word with you. Taps him on the shoulders, I imagine, pulls him aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord. Do you realize the audacious stance and posture that this disciple was taking? He was presuming authority of himself, and he was chastising and rebuking the Lord of glory, Christ, in the flesh. He's saying, This shall never happen to you. But he turned, that is, Christ turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So closely recorded in the same record, we have the same man who gives assent to the identity of Christ as Messiah, but has a faulty understanding of what his work and his redemptive calling was. That is to say, it's not enough just to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. We must also have a sense a realization of what the Messiah is called to do and has, in our case, looking at it in the past tense, done. There is a confession of Jesus Christ in His identity and His work, a confession of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ that is absolutely necessary. In this moment in the record, Jesus is making this the primary theme of His instruction. When he says in verse 21, from that time, as it records, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to, to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. Our posture ought to be the same as what was missing in Peter. When Christ, through his word, takes special care to display in the glorious pages of holy writ why he has come to earth and what he was called to do, let us listen with unpresumptuous humility and soak in every word. Let us not be dismissive and say, I know that, I've heard that. I grew up with that all my life. Oh, yes, you've got to realize who you're talking to. I grew up in the church. It's exactly how Peter's attitude probably came off at this particular time. I got this. I passed a number of tests in the Bible. I've been educated in a number of of important truths of the gospel. Yet that idea of pride blinded him from seeing the deeper revelation of who Christ was. Not only was he the Messiah that would lead in victory, 
all of the ambassadors of his kingdom and triumph over his enemies, but he would do it a certain way. And Peter needed to realize that it would happen in and through the cross and the subsequent work of the Holy Spirit and indeed Christ himself to raise himself up from the dead. And that triumph and power would be sealed and proclaimed as he was seated at the right hand of the Father, thus fulfilling the verses of old and the prophets of old who declared that there would be one who would come and be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high as Hebrews records in Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 prophesies. This is the work of Christ. This is the focus of Christ's teaching at this time. And the enemy of Christ, that is the devil, Satan, has found an opportune time to return to him in temptation in the short-sighted, myopic response, reaction of one of his disciples who had just confessed something awesome and now here evidences his ignorance and unbelief, that is, in Peter's anti-confession, reminding us how important it is that we understand the gospel on its own ground, on its own merit, and that we submit humbly to the instruction of the word when we open it, and that we approach it as the poor in spirit and as not, and not as the self-acclaimed, that we might soak in those areas of understanding that we have not received as of yet. Because the confession of the true church is the identity and the work, the finished work of Christ. But we go on, it's not just these two, but also it's a association with the sufferings of Christ. Not just the work of Christ on Calvary is declared as prerequisite understanding for those who would not be allied with Satan, but indeed in relationship with Christ, but also those who would likewise bear their own cross and follow him. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Paul calls, the fellow, calls his experience and the experience of the confessing true church, as Jesus also describes it here, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. The church does not stop short at recognizing the identity of Christ as the Messiah, does not stop short of recognizing His redemptive work on Calvary, but the true church goes further. The true church personally identifies with the work of Christ to the martyr's degree. That is, whatever the cost, if it necessitates a separation with family members, yes, Lord, I will follow, is the answer. Do not think that I have come to bring peace, our Lord says in another place, Matthew 10, 34, during his commissioning discourse to the disciples, drawing to their attention terms of the cost of the kingdom of God. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies, verse 36, will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
and listen to these words in verses 38 through 39. It's reiterated here. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In this section, as well as our text today in Matthew 16, we find that there is a unity with Christ that is a calling for us as His people to share in His sufferings. To count the cost and to bear the cost, to pay the cost of following Him. How can we do this? We can only do so, again, when the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts. And one of the means that He uses to move us to the point where we freely pay the cost of following Christ is when we realize the weight of our sin and the unmerited favor of that sin being rolled upon the shoulders of Christ and the purchasing power of His blood that purchased for us the chastise in His chastisement our peace with the perfect and holy God. And so as we often mention here and as we practice frequently, communion reminds us with frequency the value of Christ's blood our dependency on it, the utter unmerited gracious nature of His holy work. And when we think about that, and when it is brought to our attention, this holy truth, it gives us the ability to lose our life for His sake. To obey, to follow, to confess, to teach, to share, to live, to deny, to lay down, and even leave behind family or friends to some relational degree, if necessary, for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, as Paul says. He counted everything of his prior life of personal acclaim but dung and refuse that he might know Christ. What moved Paul to make such a confession? One who had so much potential in any realm of life many of the culturally celebrated avenues to success. What motivated Paul to lay it all aside so that he might be stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, famished, go hungry, estranged, and denied all of the accolades and the comforts of this life was the mark of the prize, the high calling of God and Christ Jesus set before him. It was the glory of God and the realization of his own sin and himself as chief of sinners and the unmerited favor of Christ's own blood that fueled this faithful one to the martyr's sword, all the way to a martyr's death. And it will and can do the same for us, beloved. The confession, who do, I, who do you say that I am, is complete only when we realize it's Christ's identity as Messiah, it's his finished work on Calvary, and it's a realization to the degree of our own willingly, joyfully participating in his sufferings. And then there's one fourth category in this section. It's a confession of the ultimacy of the kingdom of Christ. This passage closes with Christ's declaration, verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I recall last week's message when Seth brought to us a quote from Charles Spurgeon. 
the summary of which was basically people generally, and especially perhaps within the church, will have Christ anywhere but on His throne. They'll have Him as their Savior. They'll have Him as their fire and life insurance. They'll have Him as their comfort, their guide, their guru, their teacher. But will they have Him as King, as Judge and Lord? That pill is far harder to swallow, especially these days. In a culture that's conditioned by postmodern nuance that wants to recreate Christ in our own image, not bow to His rule and lordship as not just the suffering servant, but resurrected Lord. Not just the one with compassion and love, but with judging power and a sword. The one pictured in Revelation even is the same as the one pictured here. God's power is evident in His triumph over sin at the cross. But Christ's glory, God's power, is also evident in slaying His enemies such that the corpses through history will pile up, according to Psalm 110. And according to Revelation, the blood will flow in that metaphorical language as deep as the horses' bridles of all of Christ's enemies who do not finally bow before it is appointed to them once to die and then the judgment. This is the Christ that we confess. We confess the Christ that is the Son of Man coming with his angels in glory, sometimes in history, in interim events, where God's judgment takes place even in time, as it has in the past, has in our day, and will in the future, and as he will come ultimately at the end of the age, the ultimate end, and at that point, before his judgment seat, separate with powerful authority and perfect discernment the sheep from the goats, and the wheat from the tares. And the bonfires of God-glorifying judgment will burn eternal with everyone who did not confess this Christ. Secondly, rock. That first section is, of course, most important as elementary understanding for the role of Christ's church and what it means to confess Christ and what it means to be His church. There's helpful understanding in three subsequent metaphors as well, however, and let's touch them briefly this morning. First of all, rock. You are Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter professes, and Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, and I tell you, That is, Christ says to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a certain setting that's recorded for us in this narrative. Rewinding just a bit, we find where this message is proclaimed to the disciples in verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm told in the commentaries that this region, Caesarea Philippi, is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, on the foothills, as it were, of Mount Hermon, which stands to the north. Mount Hermon is a picture, poetic imagery, used throughout Scripture. We referenced it, actually, in our psalm sermon recently, Psalm 42, 
It's seen as a distant and high peak. It's seen as an emblem of majesty. And in this case, it could be this very setting that helps us understand what Christ means when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. You see, the foothills in the base of this mountain was quarried for stones for construction in their day. There would be this base and bedrock, this large mass of rock out of which boulders would be called and cut to be used for building edifices and structures. And so this is helpful perhaps even in its setting for us to understand what Christ might mean to say when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The word Peter, as I understand it in Greek, is Petros, which means an individual stone or a rock, a single quarried stone, if you will. If we borrow this geographical metaphor from the Caesarea Philippi region, you are Petros, an individual rock, a stone cut out. And upon this rock, and here's a play on words, upon this rock, a different word, Petra, in this instance in the Greek, referring to Uh, The connotations seem to be a more bedrock or the entire quarry. So there's two ways, an individual element and a foundational element, a corporate element of how Christ will build his church. He will do so in a way of uh, of a foundation so strong that it cannot be shaken by outside forces. But he will do it through the individual confession of this representative apostle, Peter, And also each one of us, which are are indeed living stones, fit and fashioned, built together as later analogies of the church give us to make the whole construction. But we do so ultimately on Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone, the absolute bedrock of our faith. We We cannot conceive, at least in metaphor, of a stronger situation, a rock structure built on a rock foundation. Christ has already said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 24, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man built his house in the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so we see in the testimony of the greater gospel and the greater scripture that the ultimate rock is Jesus Christ. Paul even refers to the rock in the wilderness as Christ, I believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He's called our chief cornerstone in other places. He is the foundation, that is, his teaching, as we have just read, for a strong building, a life, and in this case, a church. You are Petros. Petros. And on this, Petra, I will build my church. Later in the gospel record, or in, in the testimony of greater scripture, we see reference to the rock, again, as Joel mentioned, a foundation stones, that is, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, there's also foundational language in Revelation 21:14 that we much might touch briefly on later. But this gives us a sense of what Jesus is getting at here, the greater context that is. This is the kind of rock, foundation and building material that makes for an unshakable 
kingdom proclamation, generationally successful, testimony to the power of God throughout all the ages that no storm will ever thwart or destroy, that no enemy will be able to penetrate or break down, that fire cannot consume, that neither flood nor hurricane can destroy or dismember. This is the quarried stone on the stone foundation that Christ is speaking of when he talks to Peter as a representative of his church. Now, this passage of Scripture in church history has become confusing to us, but for no good reason, just for humanistic fleshly reasons, particularly because of the Catholic Church who references this to draw out some kind of particular uh, particular. Uh, importance of Peter himself. But I would argue that in the context, that's immediately absurd because this is not an extrinsic, this is not an intrinsic uh, kind of strength that is spoken of here. It's certainly not coming or stemming from Peter himself as we see in the ensuing record that Peter took him aside to rebuke him in verse 22. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And so here we have a man who was called a rock and just a few verses earlier now referred to as Satan. But he turned, that is Christ turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. So one might ask, which is it? Are you a rock or are you Satan? There seems to be a big disparity between those two identities. Well, the fact is this. Peter was a rock, but he was not a rock in and of himself. He was a rock and would be a rock by the sovereign shaping of God's almighty hand. This wasn't the first time Peter failed to show himself strong. He would do so again. He would show himself somewhat ignorant in the very next record, the Mount of Transfiguration. He would come up with what he thought was a great idea which didn't fit the moment. He would deny his Lord three times. He would get himself into weird situations that on the surface looked like it compromised the integrity of the entire gospel operation here. But those things didn't matter because God was shaping Peter. And the power that would make Peter foundational as far as he had an apostolic call to proclaim the truth of God did not rest in Peter. It rested in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that day of Pentecost arrived, and his apostles and disciples were imbued with the extrinsic power and authority to confess the gospel of Jesus Christ with unwavering authority that was willing to be whipped, beaten, tortured, imprisoned, and killed for. Now we can see what Jesus was talking about. This was a rock that he would shape. And so if you feel a lot like Peter, unqualified and ill-equipped, weak and unlikely and foolish in yourself, we have cause, we have reason not to despair because the rocks that Christ perfects and shapes and quarries, hardens and sets for His church are ones that owe that entirely to Him. Later on, the apostolic and ecclesiastic metaphor continues. As I mentioned, in Revelation 21, 14, there's 12 stones that are seen in uh, imagery representing the foundation of the church as it is there fulfilled in the picture of New Jerusalem, and Peter's name is on one of them. Quite amazing that God can do such a thing with such a one as Peter or you and I. Thirdly, gates. It is declared here in the picture of gates 
that every enemy that sets itself against the work of Jesus Christ and his church will prove unsuccessful. I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is in verse 18. In this picture, the imagery of gates is important and it can be understood better in the greater context of Scripture. We look through the Old Testament and the New, and if we mark in our Bibles where that picture of gate occurs, we find that this term is infused with a whole lot of meaning. Here's just a few, uh, a few identifiers, connotations, that we can take with gate when we hear it in Scripture. Gate is, of course, and most obviously perhaps, a place of entry, ingress and egress. You go in and you go out of a gate. But gates also represented a central point of culture. The gates of the city were culturally significant. It was a symbolic center of the life and lifestyle of a people within that community. Gates were also a place of commerce and interchange, mutual, uh, economic, and relationships. Also law and the declaration of authoritative decrees would be posted on a gate, proclaimed at the gate, and court cases would be adjudicated at the gates. The gates, of course, also represent defense. Strong gates as protection against the enemy. Also settlement claims, disputes, as I mentioned, lawsuits and the like would be resolved at the gates. The gates also represented boundaries. This defines and delineates the area within this country, this nation state, and also jurisdiction. So gates are very symbol-laden and rich with meaning and definitional imagery. We see entry, culture, commerce, law, defense, settlement claims, boundaries, and jurisdictions. Now think about that when we read into the, this statement and realize its weight and import. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is saying in a word and a picture here that no matter the nation state, the culture, the law, the commerce, the defenses, the claims, the boundaries, and the jurisdictions, no matter the extent or power of man's entrenched apparent authority, none of these things will ever prove successful in derailing his church. One of my favorite moments in learning was listening to a lecture by R.J. Rushduni in the past who brought to the hearer's attention an obvious fact that is often overlooked in the understanding of this passage, and he illustrated it with a question. When was the last time you ever saw gates attacking anyone? When was the last time you ever saw gates attacking anyone? Or realize the implications. Gates do not attack, they defend. What do we think of ourselves as often as road and warrior, uh, road and war weary ambassadors of Jesus Christ? I'm just trying to stand my ground behind my gate of defense, and the enemy is constantly pummeling me with his sword and his shield and his bludgeons of doubt and despair and authoritative persecution and the like. This is not the picture. The picture here is the defensive position is one that the enemy takes. And therefore, the offensive position is one that the church of Jesus Christ takes. And we are, therefore, with sword and spirit in hand, 
the commissioned warriors to tear down the power of the enemy and to launch a spirit-led gospel offensive in every area of life so that the entry points and the egress points, the permission points, the cultural centers, the commerce, the law, the defense, and the settlement claims, and the boundaries and the jurisdictions of every name that is named under, under heaven in this life will incrementally, one by one, be taken as ground for the kingdom of God until every kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our God, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the new heavens and the new earth appear in consummate glory and every and every last historical future and present enemy of Jesus Christ is firmly placed exactly where he belongs under his heel as his footstool. The gates of hell will not prevail against the Christ-confessing church. The kingdom of God through Christ's advancing church, will execute a complete reversal of proprietary privilege. If you own something, you get to call the shots. The enemy thinks he lays claim to souls. Your soul he thought he laid claim to at one time. If you're in Christ, he no longer has claim. The enemy thinks he lays claims to this earth in Matthew 4. He lifted Jesus up and made a false promise, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you bow to me. But I'm telling you that such is not the case. And through Christ's advancing church, the kingdom of God through that means will execute in time, and most assuredly so, a complete reversal of proprietary privilege. Christ will retain all the privilege because he will eventually be seen as time unfolds and fulfills, to be the owner of everything. It will be an imminent reality, even as it is now a spiritual reality. The picture of this, in consummate form, just exudes from the pages of Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we read of a future city, civilization, with its own gates. It says in verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit, this is John's vision, the future, to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And the gates at the gates twelve angels. And the gates on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north Three gates on the south, three gates on the west, three gates on the wall of the city had twelve foundations, as we mentioned before. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles. And then John is begged to measure this city, to realize tangibly its implications, its power, and its weight. Do you see what has happened here in the course of prophetic history? There will come a day when the tables will be completely turned. And Christ will exercise his proprietary privilege over all things. And the only gates that will stand in the end are the ones that surround New Jerusalem. And outside will be the dogs, will be the revilers, will be the unrepentant sinners, will be the ones who might want to break down the doors so they can enter in another way. But since they do not go through the only door, Jesus Christ, they are rejected. It says in Revelation 22, outside these gates are the dogs, 
sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those who take refuge in their sin will be banished from this city. Those who take refuge in the ruling, reigning, risen, ascended Christ will find sweet communion and perfect peace eternal within those gates. Praise the Lord. Finally, keys. Related idea. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Christ says to Peter, representative apostle, verse 9. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In this section, we can perhaps take two ideas away when we think of keys and their purpose. One is access to strongholds, and the other is guarding the church. In Acts 14, 27, when Cornelius comes to Christ, it is seen as a watershed moment as Acts unfolds with the gospel reaching Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And here on the threshold of the uttermost parts of the earth, the unlikely Gentile comes to Christ. And in the close of this record, this opportunity is described as a door that is flung wide open for the gospel. The keys of the kingdom and the hand of the apostles are unlocking doors. They're accessing strongholds. The strangle grip of paganism on the hearts and minds of the unbelievers like this man and others represented by him in the surrounding regions, would have to relent and release as the Holy Spirit opened up doors into the pagan world, bringing the gospel. Again, doors are described often in Paul's records to show how the Holy Spirit threw wide open opportunity to bring Christ to the hearers who otherwise were totally lost and depraved in their sin. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Colossians 4, 3, Macedonia, Corinth, Ephesus, Asia Minor, Rome, and on to Spain. And as far as God's predestined power would have, doors were being flung open as keys in the hands of the apostles, as it were, were providing access to holdouts and strongholds of the enemy. So long as the key of the gospel was in their hand, there would be no door that God had designed it open according to such means that would remain shut to the proclamation of Jesus Christ in Him crucified and resurrected. Also, there is the purpose of keys that walk as well. And so it was that the early church would be commissioned to guard against heresy in particular. In John 10, verse 1 through 9, Christ is the only door through which legitimate members of the church can arrive. And the door is locked to any who would come another way. And the fences are high for the thief and the robber who would like to jump over. And in the book of Revelation, we see that with the keys in hand, Jesus Christ, through His church, the faithful confessing bride, are faithfully guarding the church against heresy. Judgments are delivered against false prophets and the, those who would do a great damage to the kingdom by bringing an antichrist gospel. And to this day, Jesus Christ, through those who faithfully adhere to and preach His word on its own intrinsic its own self-authenticating authority, continue to do the same. In the prophetic role of the proclamation of the Word of God, with keys in hand, those who proclaim it rightly guard the church against the enemies who would like to sift and to sort and to destroy and will always prove ineffective against the means that Christ supplies. And so we see this pattern in the book of Matthew unfolding of Christ's involvement with His covenant people, and I just remind you, in closing today, 
that according to Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 7, it really should be no surprise. God has always seen fit to magnify His holy name in dealing with His covenant people despite the naysayers by choosing them not because of their intrinsic merit, but indeed because they are weak, not very impressive. He shows Himself powerful when He routes their enemies, when He blesses them and provides them with the necessary armaments and conquering power to move against what appears to be a greater enemy to advance the namesake of Jesus Christ and the kingdom advancing authority of the gospel to the furthest reaches of this world until the fullness of the elect has come in. We fast forward just briefly in this record to the transfiguration of the next chapter, which hopefully we'll cover next week to some degree, and we see the kind of Christ that is revealed here, just a glimpse in the true glory that is represented in the way that God moves in history. And this glory is such that His face shines like the sun. And the blinding radiant power of this light emanating from Christ Himself moves His disciples. Again, just three representatives to fear and to worship. But this behind-the-scenes glory we will one day behold in the New Jerusalem as well. And the light will be such there will be no shadow and no sun because the Son of God will guide our way and light our path and illuminate the beautiful glory of His proclamation and word for all of His redeemed to see for all eternity as we add to our consciousness reason upon reason to echo with those unlikely ones who have gathered with us by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, every one of us who are in Jesus Christ this morning, that you have seen fit to extend your love to us, that you first loved us while we were in our transgressions, and you died for us, and your blood has purchased us, and you have sovereignly revealed yourself to us. We rejoice in these truths, we have nothing, Lord, to respond except praise. We have nothing to say except glory and worthy. Glory to the Lamb and worthy are you, Lord. I pray that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to be shaped and equipped by your word today. And I pray that you would use us to proclaim these truths to others, that wherever you call and whoever you call, we might be privileged to see, Lord, as gospel ambassadors, many more populate the great expanse of that glorious kingdom that you have prepared, Lord, ultimately the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. We thank you for this day. May you be glorified in the fruit of this message, continuing in as far as it represents what you have written for us in Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.